I'm Father Mitch Packer, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at the Holy Word of God uh, through the lens of our tradition, to be sure, but also with a focus on how we can pray by using sacred Scripture as the uh, basis for our meditation. Now today, we will be talking about our Lord Jesus' silence in the face of his accusations during his trials and how that silence provided the means for him to accept our guilt and it was part of him fulfilling his role as the suffering servant that had been prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53. Now, of course, if you have questions or comments related to today's uh, program, we invite you to be part of the show by emailing your question to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com, scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com. You can also follow us and participate with the show on YouTube or do like these nice folks have done from Kentucky and Ohio and Georgia uh, to come over here and be part of our studio audience. Now, as I'm sure you're aware, we are continuing to go through my book, Wheat and Tares, Restoring the Moral Vision of a Scandalized Church. You can get that at EWTN's Religious Catalog. Simply go to EWTNRC.com. The book is item number 81098, and today we are starting our discussion on page 108. Continuing in the fifth chapter, which is about uh, the trial of Jesus, and I think it's important to point out that these trials are trials of him who will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. It'll be the trial of everybody, but now he's on, tr on trial. Now, one of the things we looked at last week was the inability of the lying witnesses to come up with an accusation. They couldn't agree about what Christ had done wrong. When you, as anybody who raises small children knows, that when they start to lie, their lie usually falls apart. It's not easy for a little kid to remember all the details. And it, when you are an adult and try to lie, it's also difficult to hold together the details. So, that's one of the things going on. Now, because they failed to give a, a, a witness that would convict Jesus, Caiaphas, Caiaphas, the high priest, took control of the situation. He spoke directly to Jesus because he had been remaining silent. He, he didn't say, you people are lying about me. You made that up. He, he stayed silent through all of the accusations. And it was at that point in Matthew 26, verse 62, that the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? 
What is it that these men testify against you? Now, again, their whole deal is they're lying and their accusations don't hold water. Um, and one, one of the issues here is that by remaining silent, it would be very easy to construe that Jesus was guilty. Uh, you see in Leviticus chapter 5, verse 1, if anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. So somebody, uh, and this is very important for uh, a principle behind the trial. No, the uh, ancient Israel was commanded by God to run the court very honestly and not to use the court to trick people. Now, we've seen so often uh, in you know, different times, especially when, not all only by any means, but especially when you have atheistic, totalitarian governments, that they use their court system to make false accusations. And this has, was certainly a key element of the National Socialist Workers' Party, otherwise known as the Nazis, right? They would use all kinds of false witnesses and just bring charges uh, against people. Um, in, for instance, even in a, a place like Poland, when they occupied Poland, if you gave a piece of bread to a Jew, you were executed on the spot. They didn't give you a trial. Communism did the same thing. These false trials were just normal. And there really wasn't much you could do about it. You know, the, and um, this is something, by the way, just a little side point. We also in this country have to be careful. I don't know if you've noticed, but I do. There is an incredible proliferation of laws. There are so many laws and regulations in our country. And you and I are not able to know them all. It's, it's impossible for even a lawyer to know all the laws and regulations at the federal level. Why do governments make so many laws? And what's going on? Sometimes it, they, they'll make extra laws, and th this was typical of the communists and the Nazis. They make so many laws that you don't know you're breaking the law, and in our system, ignorance of the law is no excuse. So if they want you for one thing that, you know, they don't like you for some political reason, you're bound to have broken some of the laws because you don't know they're there. Good, good example. I don't know if you knew this. There's a law on our uh, U.S. law that if you have a garden in your backyard, 
you are not allowed to give any of the fruit or vegetables to anybody except your own family. If you, are, if you share that your, your vegetables from your yard, uh, you're breaking federal law. Now, that, that's going to get most people, don't know that, right? It's, it's not clear and they don't usually enforce it. But in, when you get a government that's totalitarian and they want you for something else, they'll get you for that kind of law. Well, this is the, the kind of thing that, you know, governments that don't care about God's law but care about what they believe to be the best way to run things, they will use deception of different kinds within the court system to control the population and arrest whom they want. And Israel had, a, in contrast, a very clear sense that you have to be just when you are in court. And if you know something about a trial and you hide that information, you are morally culpable for that. If you don't go and tell what, you know, something that could exonerate somebody or get a guilty person, uh, you know, successfully tried, uh, you're morally. Uh, and so that's why, by that principle, our Lord not saying anything would make him responsible for his own uh, trial. But what's going on with our Lord being silent is something deeper than that. It's a deeper principle. And it goes back to Isaiah 53. Now, if you remember, Isaiah 53 is a prophecy from about 540 B.C. So this would be a good 570-some years earlier than Christ's uh, death and trials. And it predicts how the Savior will be a suffering Messiah. So it says in Isaiah 53, verse 7, we've quoted other parts of this chapter. We'll quote more of it as we go through our Lord's passion that keeps coming up. But it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. Our Lord's silence is not because he is unable to answer or because he's guilty. That's not what we construe. It's rather he is the Lamb of God. Remember how St. John the Baptist had identified Jesus? In John chapter 1, verse 29, he points to Jesus. As soon as Jesus comes up to him, and he points his disciples to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as we'll see when we go through more of this chapter, Christ died precisely at the hour 
that the last of the Passover lambs were killed. So Christ, the Lamb of God, who dies to take away sin, is acting like the Lamb of God. And he remains silent, as had been prophesied. And he is identified as a lamb because his death is not just a martyrdom, not just some sad tragedy, but it is rather Christ, the high priest of our salvation, offering himself as the Lamb of God and doing so freely and therefore not making an answer, not responding to the accusations. Now, this is something that I think is important. Remember, the purpose of this book is to have a clear sense of, you know, understand, getting a way to understand the crisis that we had with the sexual abuse that was done by clergy. And the silence of Jesus, throughout the, this part of the book, we want to see how the victims of the whole crisis are suffering like Christ, and Christ suffered in certain ways as they did. In this case, the, there are two ways in which the abused can relate. First, for a good number of them remained silent about their suffering for a long time. There are a variety of reasons for it. First, their own innocence had been violated in the abuse. And it's the kind of violation that would shock a young person into silence. They don't know how to deal with it. They don't know how to deal with the fact that they were used for an adult's pleasure. And uh, especially the uh, shock that would come to them. When somebody goes into shock, they oftentimes are silent. Um, you know, they don't know what to say. And the shock of a priest or a bishop uh, or some other member of the clergy uh, abusing them is they don't know how to deal with that. So that's one reason for their silence. Secondly, they frequently remained silent, sometimes for 20 years, not a lot of years, um, be, uh, after the abuse because... Um, they were just unable to talk about it. They didn't have words to express what had happened. And they don't oftentimes know, you know, how to put this into words, you know, that, that, so they just kept it to themselves. And they sometimes blamed themselves. They said, it must have been my fault. I must have done something wrong. That's not unusual to feel that way. Uh, when women are abused by men, physically or sexually, they oftentimes uh, have a temptation to blame themselves. Um, and this, you know, is, makes it very difficult to speak. And also, when you think about how young people themselves have, are just in the beginnings of learning how to integrate 
the, their own sexual experience, their sexuality is something that comes in adolescence in uh, particular ways uh, so that they can have babies eventually. But it takes a while to learn to integrate sexuality. And, you know, young people oftentimes have strong feelings and embarrassment and all kinds of things that make it difficult for them to t talk about this. They fear nobody will believe them either. And they don't know whom they can trust. I mean, their trust had already been behaved. If they tell somebody whom they cannot trust, how are they supposed to deal with that? So we take a look at Jesus in his silence as the silent lamb of sacrifice who opened not his mouth. And this is where in prayer and meditation on Christ's silence, it's worthwhile to take some time with Jesus' silence during this part of his trial and to help the victims resonate with Christ. It, it, in his case, it's not out of weakness, it's out of a strength. And help them to learn to speak to Jesus or just simply be present with him. Imagine standing there with Christ during the trial, during false accusations and threats of death and even physical abuse. And to deal with this is a very important thing. Do they find that they feel a certain guilt about their silence? Uh, bring that to our Lord. Do they uh, understand that false accusations have been made against Christ, sometimes against them? And speak to Christ about their silence from their own hearts. And what would he say back about his silence? And how would he help to meet them? And sometimes it's not even where he may say something. It may be a quiet with him. But to have a sense of being with Christ in the silence so that they can understand better how to deal with it. All right, we'll stop there. We'll come back in a couple of minutes and deal with the next part of the trial when Jesus our Lord does speak up and speak the truth to his accusers. So please stay with us. So now, after, um, you know, Caiaphas was kind of stumped by our Lord's silence. You know, criminals who are being accused of uh, capital crime usually want to say, no, no, I didn't do it. No, uh, at least 
Mrs. Packler's sons sometimes did that. I didn't do it. Nobody saw me. Can't prove a thing. Um, uh, but, you know, this is something that stumped Caiaphas. He doesn't know how to deal with Christ's silence. So at that time, it takes a completely different tack. We see in Matthew 26, verse 63, Caiaphas speaks and says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, at this point, he is giving him a solemn order to tell whether he's the Christ. Now, in some ways, that question echoes the answer that St. Peter had given about, you know, when our Lord said, who do, you, who do people say the Son of Man is? And in Matthew 16, verse 16, Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Notice how, um, you know, Caiaphas asks, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. How he got wind of that kind of formula or close approximation is not clear. But this is something that uh, Peter would not do. He would not repeat during his time in the high priest's courtyard. Peter does not have a silence that comes from strength, does he? No, he won't. Uh, he said, surely you're one of his disciples. No, so, nope, don't know the guy. I never met him. Don't know a thing. You know, he, he denies three times. Whereas Christ's silence is not out of the cowardice of Peter to stand up for Jesus, but it comes from another kind of strength. When Peter did correctly answer, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was because the Father had given him a special grace of faith to be able to state that. And our Lord knew that yeah, it wasn't from you, Peter, but my Father. And this is, uh, and we still, like I said, don't know how Caiaphas would know about this. It didn't come from Peter's talking about it in the courtyard. And this is going to be a very important question when it comes to um, the, the trial here before the Sanhedrin. But later on, when we see our Lord tried by Pontius Pilate, the claim to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, has no relevance to that trial. Here in the the trial before the Sanhedrin, they're going to accuse Jesus of being too divine. Later on, when they get to the trial before Pilate, they'll accuse him of being too human in his desire for ambition and a worldly kingship. This is how, another example of how they could not even agree on how to charge him. They changed the charges against Jesus from one trial to another. So Jesus finally had to respond. He had been adjured solemnly, and he said in verse 64, You have said so. 
But I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, notice, Caiaphas asked if he was the Son of God. Jesus responds, I am the Son of Man. That is a title from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 14. And there you see the Son of Man comes on the clouds and is at the right hand of the Father. He is, well, I'll just read the verse and start with Daniel 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. By answering the way he did, our Lord Jesus is claiming to fulfill Daniel 7, 13 to 14. That's exactly what he's doing. And Caiaphas, of course, knew that. Um, and so you see that on one hand, our Lord accepts Caiaphas' statement. You have said so. But he adds that he is fulfilling another prophecy from Daniel 7. And the importance of making that clear is that Caiaphas uh, is not going to set the norms for how Jesus fulfills the Bible. Jesus does that. The Father's will does that. So this is not on the terms of Caiaphas, but on God's plan and God's salvation. And we also see a, a, a reference there from Psalm 110. Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus also very much claims to fulfill that messianic prophecy in uh, Psalm 110. And while our Lord recognizes that Caiaphas, as high priest, has the authority to uh, bring Jesus to trial, based, however, on his own role as high priest, which also comes from Psalm 110, Jesus looks and tells him that he, Jesus, has the authority to judge the nations. God gives him that authority, and he will put all of his enemies under his footstool. And this is as much a call for Caiaphas to stop being an enemy. Um, that's not going to quite happen. Now, this is something that we uh, then see how Christ frequently makes a point to help us see uh, in his parables how sinners and the righteous coexist in the church. There are both good people and bad people in the church. And they will exist throughout history. They're, they're just going to be bad folks, have been. And it's been sometimes, not often, 
but a few times there have been bad folks all the way at the top of the church. Um, some of the popes in the 10th century and plenty of the bishops who focused on wealth and power rather than on the gospel. And there are also saint bishops and saintly popes at the same time. So Pope St. Gregory VII came after a Benedict who was one of the worst popes ever. You know, this is the kind of thing that happened. We saw it at the beginning of this book in the parable about the weeds and the wheat, the parable of the bad fish and the good fish. They are going to be gathered up by the angels and thrown into the fire, while the wheat and the good fish will be gathered into uh, heaven. This is going to be key. Um, we just had the gospel uh, not too long ago where the foolish virgins will be locked out of the wedding feast while the wise and prudent virgins will be able to enter into it. The goats will be kept out of the Father's kingdom. The sheep will be brought in. This is going to be the judgment that Christ has the authority to do. And this is something that everybody has to understand, um, including when it comes to the issue of the abuse scandal and any other scandal caused by the church, financial scandals, sexual scandals, power scandals, any of that kind of thing, that the morally righteous and the morally just are going to be judged and rewarded. But those who are unrepentant sinners, those who will not repent of their sins, uh, whether it's through victims or through willing accomplices, doesn't matter, whether it's with children or adults, doesn't matter, that if we are unrighteous, we will be judged and condemned. This is part of what Christ is saying. It's his role. And um, a lack of concern, and this is something that permeates our culture. Right now, young people are objects of a, a certain amount of victimhood on lots of levels that people who see confused young people when they come from families that are broken or were never whole to begin with, they don't know who they are and their own identities are questioned. And there are adults who try to manipulate them. You know, instead of helping them work through their confusion to a more peaceful resolution, they oftentimes uh, make them tools and objects of political agendas, financial agendas, doctors who do sex change operations because it's so lucrative, or people who use it for their politics, or to make children into sexual objects. Um, that will be judged. And the abusers will have to stand before Christ the judge. And in any kind of, any sinner, for that matter, will have to stand before Christ and receive a truer judgment than they could ever even give to themselves. The judgment of Christ about 
anybody in the church or outside, will be more true and honest than anything else. And we all have to remember that we give an accounting to him. Not people in the world and human judges who might or might not know all the facts, but to the judge who knows the depths of our hearts better than we know ourselves. And this is where we keep on preparing ourselves for that judgment by honest examination of conscience, honest repentance, and taking steps to turn away from sin and to seek virtue and holiness. This is the task that we have. All right, well, we will stop there and let's go to some of your questions. First of all, I'm going to start off with a question from here in our studio audience. Ma'am, where are you from? I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio. Good to have you here. Thank you, Father. And what can we do for you? Yes, I, Father, I was just wondering if there's a correlation between Jesus' silence in the presence of his, his interrogators that you mentioned earlier mm -hmm. and uh, the English common law whereby a, de a defendant's decision to remain silent cannot be construed as an admission of guilt. Right. Well, no, the English common law has a different assumption that in our law, unless you're a political opponent, you are presumed innocent until you are proven guilty. So you assume that somebody is innocent. So until they have very concrete evidence that you are guilty, that you are innocent. And so their silence assumes innocence. But see, not all law systems do that. Some court systems assume you are guilty until you prove that you're innocent. Our system doesn't. You know, you, uh, and that's, uh, it was in part a reaction against some of the ways that the English were treating the colonists uh, before the revolution. And so this was where we made a strong insistence that you uh, do not have to prove that you're innocent. But it is like courtroom you did. We don't require anybody to prove they're innocent. We assume you're innocent. And something that is not necessarily uh, found in <laughs> the news media. <laughs> On both sides, by the way, on both sides, you know, of our uh, political aisle. All right, let's uh, go to an email from Jen, who's also from your state of Ohio. Uh, Father Mitch, I know it's a big subject, but could you give us a short explanation of the book of Revelation? What does it mean? How is the reader supposed to interpret it? I get many different answers from different people, Jen in Ohio. Well, one of the reasons you get some differences is that uh, it is a big book, so there are going to be different perspectives. A couple things. Uh, it's very much uh, should be read as bookends with the first 11 chapters of Genesis, okay? where the old creation 
and sin being brought in, now a new creation and the end of sin. Sin will be punished with a final judgment. But before that judgment, the earth has to end. So this deals with a couple things. First, Christ is in charge and he is speaking at the beginning of the book to churches, seven churches that were on a circular road in what's now Turkey and that they are to be very careful about examining their own conscience. Christ examines their conscience for them. Only one of them comes out as doing well. The other, everybody else is mixed and some of the churches were pretty bad shape. So he corrects that. Then from chapter four uh, through to the end, it's a series of visions about the heavenly court and how in the heavenly court, the decisions to punish the world for sin come about. The punishments are meant to call people to turn away from sin and they don't do it. Finally, uh, you see that this, there's war between the forces of God and evil, Satan versus the angels, Christ against all the sinners. And from chapters 12 forward, you see that uh, final uh, set of wars where the kingdoms of the world will be destroyed, especially the Roman Empire. Um, that, that's seen as the worst of the enemies of God. And then after those kingdoms are defeated, Satan is imprisoned a new heaven and a new earth, the new Jerusalem is created and the redeemed are able to live in that heaven. And um, this is a very important thing because it's not only about having a wonderful place we live, but God will heal us. He will wipe away everybody's tears. He will rectify the things that have been done wrong. And it's very important to see this clear uh, transformation of the world through pain and suffering. It won't, it's not going to evolve into this. It's going to be with suffering and difficulty, but it will be resolved uh, at the end of time. Okay. All right, we'll take a little break and come back in a couple of minutes with more of your questions. Thank you. Now, first of all, I want to invite you to please join me tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for EWTN Live. We will be speaking with the Bishop Emeritus of the Diocese of Birmingham here in Alabama. 
Bishop Robert Baker. And we'll be talking especially as we finish, you know, get ready for Thanksgiving and then Advent, how do we spiritually prepare ourselves for the Advent and the Christmas seasons? He's got a great new book. I was able to read it and talk to him. Uh, we'll talk to him about the, what's going on with Christian, Christmas and Advent so that we celebrate them both well. All right, let's uh, take a look at some of your questions. I have a question from our studio audience. Father, where are you from? Hartford, Connecticut. Good to have you here. Welcome. And what can we do for you this fine day? How would you respond to the uh, statement that I've heard periodically that the vast majority of the priests of the world have remained faithful to their vows? I would agree with that 100%. Good. And, you know, what we have dealt with is that about 3% of Catholic clergy were involved in the abuse of young people. That was, that was about the percentage of all priests. We can see how bad that 3% uh, influence uh, was on the church. It was horrible. But it's not only that it is a, a very small percentage of the priests who engaged in that, and, uh, but it's also uh, something that is a fraction of the percentage of school teachers who abuse children. That, uh, the last I heard, is getting close to, or it's actually over 14%. And that involves hundreds of thousands of teenagers and young children. Hundreds of thousands. And of them, 52% of the abusers are women teachers and administrators. And so the, uh, it's, it's a problem in the law, uh, excuse me, in the uh, medical field, uh, that doctors have a higher rate of sexual abuse, and um, uh, so do psychologists and a number of other. And then, of course, there's a lot of abuse that goes on at home. This is a cultural problem that's very serious. The Catholic Church was legally easier to sue than a lot of these other areas. And in some cases, um, the teachers' unions have protected the teachers from lawsuits. And so um, I recommend that just go online and you can look up uh, Rubber Room New York. Uh, that, that's a reference to what the, state, uh, the city of New York does with teachers accused of abuse. And they get full pay, benefits, all that uh, after an accusation. And they just have to go to that one building. And so, you know, look that up. The New York Times, I believe, did the uh, story on that. So, the, the, you know, it's, it's a problem throughout our culture. But priests were guilty, and it was wrong. But it's a small portion of it. There would be a larger group of priests who have been unfaithful to their vows at one time or another. 
uh, with adults, but that percentage, of, now this, I'm going by George Barna's research, uh, but George Barna researches religion with, you know, sociological studies. And actually the uh, percentage of Catholic priests who engage in uh, sexual relations, you know, that break their vows is about half of the rate of Protestant ministers doing the same. So that, you know, having a married clergy does not prevent that at all. You know, it's in fact, uh, celibate clergy tends to lessen it. Um, and the majority of priests are shown to be very happy in their vocations. They love doing what they do and they are faithful. Uh, but there are some who don't. And sometimes it's uh, so a priest or a bishop that may make uh, commit a sin. I don't want to just say make a mistake. They, uh, it's that too, but it's also commit a sin, um, you know, one time or other. And then they learn from their mistakes. Um, but, you know, it does happen, but it's not the majority by any means. And, that, and statistical evidence demonstrates that. So this is very important to be aware of. Nonetheless, we, the reason I wrote this book is that uh, you have, um, you do have these problems. We need to deal with them. Lawyers and psychologists and doctors can deal with some aspects of it, but all of us can bring this to our prayer and work through this in the light of Jesus Christ. And so that it's not just solving a problem, but it's also dealing with the problems in the depth of our prayer as a church. And that's very important. All right, ma'am, where are you from? I'm from Kentucky. Good to have you here. And what can we do for you? All my Protestant friends said they're getting raptured up before the Antichrist comes out. Mm -hmm. And all my life, I was told that we're going to be here when the, you know, until the rapture is the total end of the world. Mm -hmm. when, so I want to ask one another right answer when I, they ask me these questions. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, I, I'm going to um, r recommend that there, I think in our religious catalog, we even have a couple of books uh, like Will Catholics Be Raptured and things like that. Uh, Carl Olson is one of the writers. There's another book. I can't remember the author's name at the top of my head, but um, there are a couple of books about this from a Catholic perspective written by converts who had been in those churches. First of all, the idea of the rapture uh, is something that started in the 1850s AD. This had never been part of Christian teaching, not, not Protestant, not Catholic. It was an English lawyer who came up with this and came to America and it spread here. Um, secondly, uh, the, the word rapture, as some folks like to ask about our doctrines, the word rapture is not in the Bible. <laughs> now, it does say in 1 Thessalonians 4, that when Christ comes at the, with the, the, the voice of the angel and the trumpet sounds, that there will be those people who are still uh, uh, in the grave will be raised up and those who 
are alive will be taken up to meet him. Um, but the idea, and as a matter of fact, when you talk to people who teach about the rapture, you see a great variety of opinion. Uh, some say, oh, the rapture will happen before all the tribulations. No, some say it's going to happen in the middle of the tribulation. Some say after the tribulations. These folk, none of those folks are in charge of scenery direction for the end times. Okay? Neither am I. I profess my ignorance. I don't know, you know how our Lord's going to do it. But from the book of Revelation, it does appear that Christians will be alive throughout uh, all the different suffering and will suffer martyrdom and other terrible things. So this is going to be part of it. And the, um, you know, the end time, you know, the idea that a number of people will be raptured, there'll be people left behind who still can make a decision. Um, I, I don't see that anywhere in the Bible. That's just not something that's there. When Christ comes at the end to judge the living and the dead, this is what our creed teaches us, right? When he comes to judge the living and the dead, then he will judge everybody. There'll be a final judgment at the end of time so that um, your deeds with all their ramifications will be judged. For instance, when you die, you'll be judged for your sins. But at the end of time, the, the whole story ends. And the good that you did will continue to have effects. The children you raised well and taught in the faith might have uh, descendants who become saints. And you see the, the results of the life of someone like Mother Teresa or Mother Angelica, you know, that the work that they did continues to have a good effect in the world. St. Benedict, his Benedictines are still around. You know, that there, this is an effect through the centuries. And that's why there's a judgment at the end. You see the full ramifications of your good, or as in the case of the communists and the Nazis, the full ramifications of your evil. You know, all the Jews that were killed by Hitler, the Kulaks killed, the Ukrainians killed by Stalin, they could have solved problems like cancer and their descendants, but they're dead. So that's very important. All right, let's now take another email. This one is from Kirk in Lynn, Massachusetts. Dear Father Mitch, in the Bread of Life discourse in John's Gospel, when our Lord talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, is Christ referring to his resurrected body and blood? A book I'm reading about the Jewish roots of the Eucharist asserts that Jesus was not referring to the dead flesh of his corpse, but eating the living flesh of his resurrection body. I had not thought of it in that manner and wanted to hear your comments. That would be quite correct. You know, uh, our Lord's body did not remain in the tomb. Now, at the Eucharist, we do celebrate both his death and resurrection. That's what we say in the acclamations. We proclaim your death uh, and your glorious resurrection until you come again. So it's that hope for the end times. And 
that at the consecration, you celebrate the moment of Christ's death when his body and blood are separated. But then you notice how the priest, right before communion, breaks the host, breaks off a small fragment and puts it into the chalice. His body and blood are reunited as a symbol of the resurrection. That's why that's done. That's to sh demonstrate that we receive Christ raised from the dead. So that receiving communion is a participation in our Lord's resurrection. But attendance at Mass, especially through the consecration, is for, you know, participating in His crucifixion. So the whole of the mystery of salvation is brought out in the Holy Eucharist. I strongly urge you to take a look at some of Archbishop Sheen's wonderful teachings on uh, tape and on the YouTube about the drama of the Mass. That's usually what he calls it. It'll be very useful. Well, we have to bring this to an end. Thank you all for being with us. And may Almighty God bless you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you and fill you with great joy at this time of thanksgiving and joining your family. May Almighty God bless you all, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. And Mother Angelica was inspired by our Lord to have this network brought to you by you. So we always ask you to please keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill, because that's the only way we can pay all of our bills too. God bless you all, and thank you.